the Bible reading, which is found in John chapter 6. And the first 48 verses, I'll read verse 1 to 21, and Jenny will read 22 through to 48. So John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 6 rather. Uh, this is following on obviously from the end of chapter 5. And it says in verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that, of those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, I, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he, is, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. long passage, and yet we haven't got to the end of it. Critical passage. I'd have to say that uh, this passage, if understood, uh, is nothing short of revolutionary. It will, if understood, revolutionise the way you do life. If understood, it will revolutionise the way you do church. In fact, I want to come to the end of this passage in a moment uh, to point out that there are basically two fundamentally different ways of 
being the church in the world today and they have to do with how you understand this passage. This passage, John chapter 6, obviously follows John chapter 5 but as we have been working through this sequence we've started to notice and I've tried to point out that the way John has constructed this gospel is important for us to observe and fall in line with. We often atomize bits out of the Gospels and like taking coral out of the sea we lose context, we lose content and in this passage we, we must keep the narratives and the speeches together. It's the speeches that tell us whether we've interpreted the narratives correctly, it's the narratives which give the depth dimension to what Jesus is talking about. So in a sense, if we're like surveyors who triangulate the truth through two trig points here and two angles. So that's why we're having a long reading this morning and I pray that your roast was not turned on too early. <laughs> but hopefully we can get there uh, at, a, 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 at a proper pace. I, uh, I'm presuming you know these stories well, so we're not going to work through each verse uh, and this week not in the Latin, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll try and <laughs> keep moving along. But uh, basically we have, the way this whole chapter works is we have two stories. And the difference in the way Jesus deals with these stories this week is that he's not just saying, look at me and understand who I am, my divine, my deity, my identity, my mission. He's not just identifying with the types that were in the Old Testament, he's also now adding another dimension, which is he's starting to teach the disciples about their mission through the things he's doing. It's another layer of meaning happening here. And as last week we saw, we came to a climax where in Jerusalem the Jews write him off. In fact, they want to destroy him. Here, this is a story, and you would have noticed if you read to the end of the chapter, that as Jesus goes through this passage, he ends up at the end of the chapter with virtually all but the twelve abandoning him. And he seems to bring it on himself, happily. Why is that? Store that thought. Scene one, miracle one, feeding of the 5,000. I remember reading that in Sunday school. It's in every gospel. Pretty obvious. It shows that Jesus certainly is powerful, that he somehow provokes this whole issue. He orchestrates it. You have the scene where people are coming to Jesus in their droves. John is picking up on that. So even while he's teaching the disciples, which in this chapter is used in a broad sense, not that just the twelve, but anyone who had some interest in Jesus. And most likely, if we understand the social demographic of this age, these people were basically subsistence workers, day labourers. The vast majority of the population in Galilee at this time was in peril, day by day. They depended upon picking up a bit of work every day from the landowners, who were a much smaller bunch, more privileged bunch. And they, they didn't have a ledge that they could sit on that was secure. And these people are the sort of people that come to follow Jesus. And they flock out in their multitudes 
And Jesus does what Jesus does the best, he teaches. He cannot help by doing it. And it was pretty obvious. Here you have Israel in a rocky, deserted place and a man on the mountain teaching. What does that remind you of? If you're a Jew, you would say, this is familiar. This is part of my Sunday school, Sabbath school. This sounds and looks awfully like Moses. And as Jesus takes on the mantle of Moses, he bursts the envelope and he does more. And, and Jesus provokes this situation when he turns to Phil and he says, Phil, got a crowd, it's about tea time, where are we going to get enough bread to feed these people? And he wants to get Phil's cogs working. And Phil does the math and he goes, well, about six months' wages wouldn't feed this bunch. This bunch. And don't see any takeaway. <laughs> so where are we going to do it? And Phil comes to the conclusion it can't happen. And the other Gospels tell us that Jesus sends them out to take an inventory of what they do have. And I think that happens here and they come back and they find a kid with his lunch, you know, all the Sunday school stories. Meager, grotty, hot little lunch. And I think at that point, the disciples, as the boys present the inventory to Jesus, they would have said, best we can do. You see, knew it was impossible. Can't feed this crew in the universe. He said, thank you very much. I'm trying to teach you something here. And Jesus takes what he does have and he breaks it. He looks to heaven. He prays. He makes heaven culpable for what's about to happen here. It could have been egg on the face time, but Jesus knows who he is and what he came to do. He knows that this is object lesson number one for the disciples. The first thing he wants to teach them is something to do with bread in a desert. And if you're in a desert without food, then bread in the desert is about salvation. It's about survival. But Jesus isn't talking just about stomach survival. He's talking about eternal salvation through the physical object lesson that he is teaching them. And the first object lesson he wants to teach us, and if we don't remember anything I say today, it's simply this, that salvation, the saving of the world, the feeding of the masses is beyond us. It is a false gospel that says you can do anything if only you realised it. That is not the Christian message. The Christian message isn't banal optimism. The Christian message is our impotence and his competence. That's the second object lesson. Salvation of the world is not beyond him. It's beyond us, not him. And I think he thought they'd get it. And so he prays, he breaks, he distributes and they feed. Did they get it? And it's fascinating and symbolically very important. John, like a French Impressionist painter, plays down the obvious and highlights the essential. That's how the painters paint. 
And he paints this picture in their minds which he hoped they would never forget and they didn't. It's in every gospel. And he has this little detail. Remember in every story there's a little unimportant detail and it's the unimportant details that are essential. And here he tells the boys to clean up. And it wasn't because it's a anti-litter weekend. They clean up so that nothing would be lost. And when they do that, they end up with 12 baskets. So they've already fed Israel, and yet there are 12 more baskets. So you can feed Israel, you can save Israel, and there's enough for another set of 12. I wonder who they are. Do you reckon they got that? Well, Jesus uh, may have been a great teacher, but the students weren't much chop. He uh, does this enacted parable in front of their eyes, and they get part of it. And in chapter, in verse 15, the mob, having seen him, Having been to their Sunday school, remember that Moses said there was going to be a prophet coming like me. That was the Messiah. He would do the things that I did. And they go, we've got it. And these day labourers whose life is pretty meagre, who have no hope of any constructive economic and social dimension, they see that this guy, even if he isn't the Messiah, doesn't matter. He could work for us. Imagine taking this guy to Jerusalem on the basis of this miracle. And they, the mutter goes around the crowd and Jesus knows what they're saying. And they start to rise up and they're going to seize him. Regardless of his agenda, they're going to make him their agenda. And they're going to take him down south. And boy, what we could do with this guy if we only had the chance to march on Jerusalem. Imagine the movement we could make. And that's what's happening here and Jesus knows their intention. And so he has to avoid the crowd and he does two things. He avoids the crowd and he says to the disciples, I'll meet you later, they don't know where. Get in the boat, go to the other side. The other side, the God-forsaken territory, I'll meet you there. Don't you worry about how, you just go. And off they go, it's nearly evening after tea they start rowing they press out Jesus disappears Jesus is about to teach them a very similar lesson good teachers don't teach the same thing once and assume it's been digested do they and so he rams home this lesson this day and they're out on the sea you know the story another good Sunday school story and they're putting their backs into this these are experienced and robust fishermen remember most of them and they're straining their backs and they've got the, the wind blowing across them and it just picks up. And then wind and waves are against them. And if you've ever tried to row across a lake or down a stream against the current, it's pretty hard. But when the sea picks up and they're just making very little headway, three or four miles out, it's taken them half a night to get there. And then in the middle of that, while they're looking ahead, a figure starts 
plonking across the tops of the ocean. Now, Jesus, a northern boy, excuse the accent, excuse the poetic license, but I think he would have just been moseying along and I don't think he intended to get into the boat. He was going along beside them. Good night for a roar. <laughs> and they see him and they think, my goodness. And they're frightened. Why are they frightened? They recognize him, but they make the assumption that he is what? A ghost. And they put one and one together and get five that Jesus had been left there and the mob have got him and it's turned bad. Oh dear, we've lost our Jesus and here he is in ghostly form. These men aren't scared of the sea. They know waves. They know sea. They are scared of ghosts. <laughs> and Jesus draws up object lesson he is trying to teach them that when you seek to obey God in mission it is difficult seemingly fruitless in fact you can put your back into it for a long time and see no fruit seems to be difficult mission salvation is opposed you know in this church you really should have led, I went to a 50th anniversary yesterday of my second church. Fascinating hearing the history of how difficult it was to get that church planted. The only church that preached the gospel to the east of the Hume Highway for 200 square kilometres. I wonder why it was difficult. Getting it started was like you know, pulling yourself out of a rut. And yet it did. And it remains a gospel church 50 years on. That's the nature of mission. Mission is difficult. But the object lesson that Jesus was trying to teach them was it's difficult for you, it's not difficult for me. That when you get to the other side and you fulfill your part, I'll already have been there. I'll already be at work. The difficulties don't stop me. Now just imagine if we took that mentality into our world. I hear Christians talking all the time about the threat of Islam. You don't know a thing about the threat of Islam until you live in the Middle East. It's deadly. It is difficult to make any headway in the Middle East. Or Japan. Or even secular Australia or the university, or your neighbourhood, or your workplace. It's difficult for you. But when you get there, he's already arrived. He's already at work. That was the lesson. But it seems to me that as Christians we are constantly liable of truncating the sovereignty of Jesus by our own limitations and we bring him down to our capacities this is the wave treader who steps across the, all the powers of chaos who threatened to bring and fragment creation he's not threatened 
and he's not dead. Well, it backfires. They get him in the boat. Object lesson over. They're at the other side. Didn't work. And there they meet the crowd. The crowd knew the disciples left without him. And they come and by the time they get round the other side, Jesus is there. And isn't their language interesting? The previous night, they're about to make him king and march on Jerusalem. When they see him, they don't ask, how did you get here? As if to say, please, what is the miracle that has happened here? They say, what time did you get here? When? Yeah, we've just arrived. They're totally dealing on that level. And they call him rabbi. Not messiah, not king, teacher. It's amazing the difference a day makes. But basically, this little passage tells us three things about pseudo-discipleship, shallow discipleship. It tells us about the majority around the world that often think they follow Jesus. It is critical that we discern between the true and the shallow, the real and the pseudo. Jesus confronts them when they ask this question and he says, he goes straight to the heart, you know the reason why you guys are following me? It's because there's a free lunch in it for you. That's about it. You're not really interested in what I'm trying to teach. You just want to fill your bellies. And that's the first mark of a shallow disciple is they follow Jesus out of base motives. Shallow disciples have base motives. It's what Jesus can do for their immediate situation. A little talisman Jesus on the dashboard of their hearts. And Jesus confronts that. And he immediately answers them and he says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, verse 27, which the Son of Man will give to you. And Jesus' emphasis in this sentence is on the word give. Eternal life is a gift. But instead, they say to him, what must we, must we do? They pick up on the word do. What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, they're saying, Rabbi, what's your distinctive spirituality? We're really into that stuff. It's like people who are um, addicted to fitness sites on YouTube. They look for the next kettlebell circuit or body weight circuit. or What's the next weight loss secret? That's why they're there. They're saying... In terms of spirituality, what's the work, what's your distinctive teaching that you can give us? That's like shallow followers. Shallow disciples want slick formulae. They like quick fixes. They're looking for that one thing which can just trip their Christian life into effectiveness. Transcend them, get them out of the rut. And they go on and they said, you know, what's... What is that teaching to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
It's, it's that non-work. It's that you believe in me. I'm doing all these things so that you might understand that I'm the sent one. This is the work you do. It's a really a non-work. It's belief. And isn't it interesting? Suddenly they're defensive. And they said to them, and they set the terms of the transaction. Oh, you want us to believe in you. Well, if you want us to believe in you, what work do you perform? Huh? Weren't they there last night when 12 baskets were left over after feeding 5,000 people with a handful of dry food? What work do you perform? What sign do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, they even have got a little Bible verse thrown in out of the Psalms. You know, he gave them bread to eat. You know, and you see, they're, they're comparing Jesus to Moses, not seeing Moses as a type of Jesus. They're comparing Jesus backward to Moses. They've got him typecast. They're saying, if you're, you want us to believe in you rather than Moses, then you better match Moses. I mean, he fed Israel in the wilderness daily. And uh, he gave us bread from heaven. You know, not just... He, he produced it out of nowhere. Now Moses, <laughs> now that was some kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, I'd follow him. But no, you, <laughs> you don't measure up. Come on, where's your work? These are the people who yesterday were willing to crawl on broken glass to follow Jesus. Where's it all gone? This commitment. But that's shallow followers for you. That's a shallow disciple. That's a pseudo-faith. They walk by sight, not faith. They want the goods, but they have no insight. They want Jesus to solve their life problems, but there's no loyalty. Shallow followers have base motives. They want slick formula, and they walk by sight, and they're everywhere. And so Jesus thinks, hmm, this teaching exercise just hasn't worked at all. And he said to them, truly, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread of God. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. It's a person. It's me. And they said to him, God, oh, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And he goes back and he tries to explain the teaching lesson of the day before. Let me run you through it again. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you've seen me and you don't believe. So the problem isn't more data. The problem is internal, a lack of belief. And now Jesus explains, and this is what I want to leave you with this morning, what is a true disciple as opposed to someone who is just a miracle junkie or a spirituality groupie who will follow the passing parade of paraphernalia of a spiritual nature anywhere. These people are shallow and Jesus wants to deepen them and understand the nature of what a saint is. And he goes through and he tells us three things here about each of us who are truly saved which I think we forget. And if we forget them, as a ministry style, our church will head off into futility. If we understand how Jesus actually works 
to give bread in the desert, to save people, we have a fruitful future and we'll understand our part and parcel in his economy. So first of all, in verses 37, I find 37 and 38 profound. I say to you, you've seen me, you don't believe. So seeing miracles is not the same as effective evangelism. Let us never make the mistake of the signs and wonders movement that keeps on recurring, where we think if only people see another miracle, then they might believe. These people had miracles by the bucketful, but they didn't recognise the one who did them. Let's not go back there. Didn't work then, didn't change this country, and it won't work in the future, because that's not how God works. That's not what a saint is. That's not what salvation is. Jesus said, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down to heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Remember the morsels? Remember he got them to tidy up? That nothing should be lost. Here it is. That's the meaning of what I was doing. Here is the true follower. A true follower, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you realise what Jesus is saying there in that profound couple of sentences? It will change your self-esteem forever. You will never need to see a counsellor if you internalise this truth. You and I are gifts from the Father to the Son in eternity. And the Son, unlike me with my nana and her lovely puce windsheeters that she gives me for Christmas, he always loves the gifts that the Father gives. And he never throws them in the back of the cupboard. You are a gift in eternity from the Father to the Son That's where the transaction happened. That's the important thing. The Father, in his eternity, before there was a world, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, he already knew about you. And the Father thought, I I want to show the Son just how important he is. What's the best way that I can do that? I'm going to give him Joyce. Jesus says, my goodness, that's the only Joyce I've got. (laughs) And he takes Joyce and he appreciates her as a gift from the Father. He looks out and he sees John because he sees the Alpha from the Omega, sees everything. He says, I'm going to give the son John. And the son says, well, thank you, Father. I haven't got a John. (laughs) That's the best John I've got. (laughs) And he appreciates the gift. He never loses Anything the Father gives. Before there was ever a church, before there was an evangelist, before there were spiritual experiences, there was a transaction in eternity and you were part of it. That's what a saint is. A gift. A gift from the Father to the Son. That's what a true follower is. And that's why he can say, you know, verse 40... 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. The interim period and what happens is irrelevant because the Son has already received the gift. <laughs> He'll raise us up on the last day that we might not see that dimension. And that's the problem. We don't walk by sight. But if we understand what salvation is, we understand that the transaction has already happened. And now we're playing it out in human history. But it's not contingent on human history. And not even death can break that transaction. Because you're already a gift received. Can I labour that point? From the Father to the Son. And the Son never despises a gift from the Father. That's how much they love each other. And the... In other words, if you want to know, am I saved? I mean, Jeff, just a minute now. <laughs> you don't know my track record. You don't know my report card. You don't know the stupid things I've done in my life. You don't know the shameful things which I've done, which even my friends don't know. How do you know that God won't cast me out? I don't know what happens the other side of the grave. How do you know that? Well, it's because... The son has already received the gift and you are in his hands, well received. What happens in the interim and the stupid things you and I might do in the interim, irrelevant. The gift's been received in the hands of the son. And uh, right as Jesus says that, the bigwigs from the local synagogue roll in. They go, hold on a minute. What's this son from heaven business? We know this guy because these people deal on the surface. If they can't see it on the surface, they don't understand that Jesus has two identities. One identity actually in two natures. The divine nature and the human nature in one person. He never ceased being deity when he took on the mantle of humanity. He is in Christ in two natures here and they only see one, they only see the surface. And they say, what's this? We know your mum and dad. We know the street you grew up in. You know, what is this heaven stuff going on about? And uh, they assume that they can deduce revelation from what they see and that's alone, that they don't need uh, what God provides in this. And Jesus says um, to them, don't grumble amongst yourselves No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is an incredible principle. But it's an important principle. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. You wouldn't be here in church and in God's kingdom if there was not a direct intervention in your life by the Father of glides. That's the incredible thing. I'm not here by my own brilliance. Leave me to my own brilliance. I'll do the stupid thing and I'll try and run my own life. I'll try and get to heaven my own way. I'll try and impress God that I could add something to his inventory. But that's not how it happened. We are here because the Father intervened. This truth spells out something we don't like about ourselves. It's called total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean we're all bank robbers and molesters. It means 
that left to our own devices, we'll do the most perverse thing and we'll run away from God and try and get to heaven under our terms. We'll try and set the contract. That's the essence of sin. Battering down the doors of heaven. Total depravity is that. And even though we are totally depraved, God the Father can intervene and overcome that bias so that we will see Jesus for what he is. And Jesus says those important words in verse 45 and 46. And I want you to notice them today. And he said, I've got my Bible verse too. It's written in the prophets. And they shall be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone's seen the Father except the one who's from God. He's seen the Father. But truly, getting back to the point, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. What Jesus is getting at here is that if you are saved, it is because God has communicated a lesson, an educational lesson, about himself to you, personally. It might have looked like a man was talking to you in church, but that's only the surface. Underneath, spiritually, God was teaching you. It's a speech act that God was doing. He communicates because he is the teacher. And the lesson he teaches is Jesus Christ is to be trusted. That's the lesson. The Father teaches and Christ is the lesson. And he enables us, and later on we'll find through the Spirit, to receive that lesson against our better judgment. We are taught by the Father about the Son. The doctrine that this is called is called effectual calling. Or the, some reformers call it irresistible grace. But this is doctrine here. You don't come to Jesus except Jesus himself has been a lesson that has been taught to you and communicated at the moment the Spirit made it sensible to you. A true follower, secondly, is God's invention. And Jesus goes on and he says at this point, so a true follower is a gift of the Father to the Son. A true follower is actually an intervention by God into the world of your experience. And then... Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I give, the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, Jesus. Mr. Politically Incorrect. And the Jews go, what on earth is he talking about? He's going to give us his flesh to eat. Oh, they, they, do you see they live on the surface of literalism? They don't see that Jesus is trying to deliberately scandalise so they'll ask, what on earth are you talking about? The flesh I give you, you know, Jesus, I'm not crackers. <laughs> I'm not saying become cannibals. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son, mark my words, I wasn't slipping here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, they know that's him, and drink his blood, it's not a great metaphor, um, you'll have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, watch my lips, feeds my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, I'll raise him up to the last, last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, if I could make it any clearer, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. And Jesus really should have done a Dale Carnegie course, I think. He, 
He knows how to scandalise the audience, but he's certainly got their attention. And we could go into that in great detail. But what Jesus is saying is that a disciple is not a person who has just...